0: Media.
1: Totally Football Show. Happy Easter. After a hard day searching for your eggs, like Proust before she took out that restraining order, time to kick back now with a show that's chock full of Easter treats. There's retro action, 0304. Oh my! Does Arsenal go 38-0? There's Decanio at Charlton, and more players in places you really weren't expecting. And there's Match Five of the Inter Totally. Jules v Natalie. Jules gets a Brazilian, but will she tear a strip off him? Find that out and more in this totally football show in association with Paddy Power.
2: When it's shut down, that's not me and it's shut down. Ring, ring, pussy, it's shut down. Fashion week and it's shut
1: down. All right then, Skepta, and joining us today on the Totally Football Show, we got Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, James. Lovely to see you. Matt Davis-Adams is in the house, his house, of course. Hello, James. Yes, I am. And there's Daniel Storey in the attic. Hi, James. All right. Excellent. Hey, Daniel, fresh from your remarkable triumph on Thursday in the Intertotally, have you come down yet?
2: Just about, but it was, yeah. I I lured Rafa in with some old-fashioned incompetence on my first round.
1: Nice. Indy Boonan says Daniel's story seemed genuinely elated winning his tie against sign. It was emotional. If you missed it, listener, it sounded like this. Question five Who is top scorer in the Premier League as it stands?
2: Oh, Jamie Vardy? Is correct.
1: And you're through yes. to the quarter final. Yes. Wow. Uh. Wow. How did it feel, Daniel?
2: It felt very good because now it is quite literally nothing to lose. I don't mind if I lose now.
1: Well, you go through to join Alvaro Pat Nevin and James Horncastle in the quarters. Natalie and Jules, as I mentioned, will be going at it very, very shortly. And of course, Matt and Michael, you've got your own uh, first round draw, which is coming up soon. Are you, have, you, have you been preparing? Not
3: well, started boning up yet, largely because we haven't been given a date for the fixture. I don't know if that's because really? there's some squabble over the broadcasting rights for it or what, but um, no, not yet.
1: <laughs> Th- Thursday week, Matt, we're going to finish off the first round with your clash. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Good shout. Michael.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Matt, what's your special subject? Is it forest related?
3: No, it's the hugely broad Premier League squad numbers.
0: Oh, wow. That's, uh... And of
3: course, you've been writing about that. So, you know, hopefully you've given me a bit of homework. <laughs>
0: Hopefully, yeah. I, I respect that as a specialist subject. I've got World Cup 2010, which I feel is relatively broad. It's like 64 games. Mm. S- some of these, you know, just doing one team for one season. Not sure. That's a bit too specialist for me, James.
1: All right. Well, will see how you feel about the specialist subjects when uh, Natalie and Jules uh, get it on very, very shortly. Let's start off, though, today with a quick roundup of the state of inaction worldwide in the football. Rory Smith of The New York Times. Hi, James. How are you doing? Oh, very well. Lovely to to hear you, Rory. Happy Easter. Uh, So what's the news?
4: Well, there's been little bits of progress kind of around Europe. The Germans seem to be confident they will be back for sort of May, June. May seems a bit ambitious to me. They're thinking they're they're going back to training pretty soon. Um, A lot of their clubs, I think all of their clubs, in fact, have had players in for kind of social distancing training sessions, which is a weird concept, but they've obviously worked out there's, there's certain stuff they can do without actually having to train properly. And I suspect that's been done more than anything to to keep the players from getting bored to an extent. But Christian Seifert, who's the, the chief executive of the DFL, the, the, their equivalent of the Premier League, uh, spoke to my colleague Tarek Panja in the week, and he said that they they have a plan in place, that they're confident that it won't drain medical resources from the from the, from where they're needed most, obviously, in, in terms of dealing with the crisis, and that they think they will certainly be playing by June, if not earlier. In Spain as well, but I think the lockdown is going to start to ease there on Monday, in theory with certain non-essential businesses being allowed to go back, and fairly predictably... Football clubs have decided that 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 means them. So Real Sociedad, I think, are going to be the first to train there on Tuesday. So there are now. It seems as though we've come out of one phase, which was everyone sort of squabbling over what was going to happen, and now slightly more concrete plans have been put in place, so that football is ready to return when it's safe. I think that's really crucial to to highlight. No one's saying that that games can be held, you know, with sixty thousand in the stadium at the moment, but. The Germans and the Spanish certainly want to be want to be in place to get the season done as soon as it's even vaguely feasible, uh, and I right. think that's probably the case across most of Europe now.
1: Italy, meanwhile, extended their lockdown to May the fifth, so I think they might be a little bit further behind Germany and Spain. Meanwhile, though, what's going on in Scotland?
4: That's a really good question. Uh, they had this vote, at the SPFL, on on Friday in which they were trying to decide whether they were going to cancel the season and basically freeze it. So the choices at the moment are freezing and voiding. And they were going to freeze the season. Uh, the, the SPFL have said that no club would be materially worse off and they've committed to the dialogue of lead restructuring, which I think in plain English means the plan was not to relegate, but perhaps to promote if they could find a way of doing it. Um, they needed, I think, a 70% or 75% agreement across the four leagues of Scottish football to to pass it, uh, mostly the teams have voted in favour. Rangers and Hearts voted against in the, in the Premier League. I think uh, Partick and Inverness, Taledonian Thistle voted against in in the Championship. Uh, but there's this big mystery with the vote of Dundee, who didn't vote by the five o'clock deadline. The SPFL then released the results of the vote, which is a bit like calling the X Factor early and seems like fixing it, to be honest. And Dundee have now kicked off, supported by by Rangers. I think Inverness have come out and said that they'd seen in some sort of football championship Kicked off,
1: but not kicked off.
4: Yeah, yeah not kicked off in, in, in the sense that they'd like to. Um, their alternative is to basically to distribute prize money now, as the stock clubs go and bust, but to wait and see with the season effectively, and not to freeze the Scottish Premier League, uh, the, the SPFL say that is um, that's not viable. Rangers have responded by saying that there's there's been they've got evidence from a whistleblower of bullying. The SPFL have said that they have to prove that bullying. Uh, Rangers haven't done that yet. It's all a tremendous mess. And I guess the the lesson. Well, one lesson is that Scottish football tends to be a bit like this when, when things are complicated. But the other lesson is maybe for the rest of Europe, when you, when you see what happens, when you try to find a, a solution that involves not playing the leads out, that there that, that, that may well come a point where we all have to do that. And various leads around the continent have to say, right, do you know what, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to find a way of doing this. It's not easy at all to find a solution that suits everybody. I think there's a little warning for the future there from Scotland.
1: Indeed. Uh, in the meantime, Rory, everyone in lockdown and eager for things to occupy their minds with, what can you offer them? And she had a great piece about the potential impact of uh, all of this on the women's game.
4: Yeah, I think that, the, the, that it's a really important subject. A lot of the conversations about how we restart the season are being led by men. The whole conversation is basically about men's football and women's football has been shoved to one side. So a lot of women's teams share stadiums with men's teams. So if everybody has to play out, who, who gets first refusal on those fixtures. Similarly, shifting international fixtures back to later dates in the year from a men's point of view the men's game's point of view that's fine because we don't really care about international football outside major tournaments but for the women's football it's the driver not only of quite a lot of income but of quite a lot of interest so it's it's not great to see women's women's international fixtures being shifted around to, to accommodate the men's game the danger is that that when clubs start to reassess their budgets after the, the the initial phase of the crisis passes and we're into the kind of the economic collapse stage that one of the first things to go will be will be the women's team or at least part of the budget for the women's team because although it's relatively cheap to run a women's team compared to what it what it costs to run a premier league men's team for example if money is tighter then the clubs will kind of shrink back a little bit on anything they deem to be non-essential funny if i've heard the same unrelated almost on on youth academies that a lot of clubs might start to think right we, we maybe don't need to invest quite as much in youth development now because we need to kind of focus all of our funds on our on our men's first team. And I think that that raises questions, but certainly the issue of the women's game raises the question of whether that's that momentum is sustainable, whether it might suffer more than it needs to, because so many of those women's teams are, are effectively partner clubs to to men's teams, which is something I've always felt is is a slightly there's pros and cons, but it's a slightly strange balance because it means the women's team is always, is always the kind of subordinate effectively to this well-established men's team. It might now have a genuine financial impact. And I think that's something that we need to be quite careful to ensure doesn't happen because the clubs, as we've seen, the clubs will do what they can to save money. And some of that's necessary, some of it's not. It would be a real shame if they decided that actually they, they could kind of do without investing in their women's teams now. That would be a really, really negative consequence for football of this crisis.
1: There's more of that in your newyorktimes.com piece. Uh,
4: What are you working on this week, briefly? Uh, I'm thinking of of looking at people who are out of contract this summer. I shouldn't really give my ideas away, James, to be honest. Uh, I'm thinking (laughs) of doing something on on people who are out of contract this summer, uh, which I think is is a curious little angle of it. And we're also going to try and look at the impact on the transfer market, I think. That's Ooh. the plan. You can never tell to me. It's Easter Sunday. I've eaten a lot of chocolate. My wife's just cut my hair. God knows what's going to happen this week. It's, it's lockdown. It, it, it's not the normal world. Post a picture. Absolutely not. Year.
1: Okay. Rory, lovely to speak to you. Have a great Easter Monday and catch up with you
5: soon. Always a pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Totally Furble Show in association with Paddy Power.
1: Lots of listeners getting in touch. And many thanks to you on our nicknames chat. Dirk Boyton says, all this best footballer nickname chat no mention of the permanently underwhelming Olderman Everton left-back Neil Poynton, or Dissa as he was known. <laughs> <laughs> uh, PZ1013 uh, references our chat about a shot at glory, the Robert Duvall, Ali McCoyst extravaganza and the notion that it might have been... Slightly far-fetched, this American owner trying to move Kilnockie in the Scottish Second Division to Dublin. PZ 1013 says it actually wasn't far-fetched at all because it was based on what was actually being proposed at that time for Clydebank. Didn't know that. And Wimbledon as well. Oh, and Wimbledon, true, yeah. Wimbledon did get a mention, but to be fair to them, they weren't in the Scottish Second Division at the time, or indeed currently, as far as I know. GFR87 uh, says, idea for a topic... How about an 11 of footballers who also acted, not playing themselves? Or I would add to this, GFR 87, playing footballers because, you know, you get footballers in for your escape to victory roles or, or um, Owen Coyle, for example, in a, a, a shot at glory. But great footballers acting. And again, I wouldn't include winning a penalty, Stephen Gerrard, that kind of thing. But actually in film roles, Matt, who have you got? OK, I'm not sure he was a great footballer, but it's our old friend one size. Uh, Fitz
3: Hall, apparently, as a 12-year-old, was in the fifth element. No. Right at the start of the film, um, he told The Guardian in 2007, I tried to keep it quiet, but I'm there at the start. You can't miss me. I still get phone calls from people saying, is that you in the film? There's a little kid who looks just like you. I was only 12 at the time, but I've not changed. I think that last bit's debatable. But
1: um, yeah, that one took me by surprise. I'm curious as to how he became involved in the Luke Besson, a sci-fi extravaganza that was the fifth element.: So your other options, Michael, Daniel, you, pre- you probably know all these. Canton R and Elizabeth. Do you remember that one?: oh,
3: Sounds yeah.
6: like this. Would
1: David Beckham oh, in King Arthur. Bouncing on my knee. where do you think I want ya? Hands on the heel, stupid top work there from uh, david beckham stan Collymore, famously is in the opening sequence of basic instinct 2 you never actually hear him talk All he does is a lot of moaning which to be fair is very much on brand but uh, while he's, he's pleasuring basically they're driving along sharon stone's driving a fast car he's pleasuring her digitally i think is probably the best way of saying it and then she drives into the thames
2: Frank LaBeouf in The Theory of Everything because that was a genuine, normally with these things you know it's coming and in that one it was a genuine, is that Frank LeBeuf? Right. And it is Frank LeBeuf.
1: The only way of winning him off the ventilator will be to give him a tracheotomy a hole in the neck bypassing the throat he will never speak again
3: The film won an Oscar, right? So he's the only person to have won the World Cup and an Oscar.
1: Wow, that's remarkable there you go, GFR87, thank you for that topic. Michael, were you thrilled by that?
0: Uh, yeah, very much so. I Good, all right. I well, enjoyed it. Wait,
1: wait till you hear what's up next, because we've got Brazil's Natalie Jedra taking on France's Julien Laurens in a very international instalment of the InterTotally Cup. All right, listener, it's time to get our quiz on. Uh, 16 Totally Pundits on a quest. To be the best, and two more of the Totally team are set to tussle. Now, let's meet today's contestants.
5: Up first, here's a professional Parisian determined not to choke on the big stage. Ooh la la, it's the PS genius, Julien Juju
7: Laurent.
5: Jules,
1: welcome to the It's Totally Cup. How are you feeling?
6: I feel a bit of pressure, like if I was about to uh, play second leg of the Champions League quarterfinals against Barcelona, but at the Camp Nou, but apart from that, it's all good. Thank you for the introduction. That was, that was brilliant. It's obviously the song that uh, is at the Pas des Princes when the, the teams get on the pitch. Very nice
1: indeed. Well, let's find out why your palms are sweaty. Here's the person you're up against.
5: And his opponent... She's chewed more stats than Pele's munched little blue pills. Bringing the smarts from Sao Paulo, Natalie, El Natural Gédera!
0: Yes, i in Portuguese, I'm Natalie, welcome back to the show.
7: Yes, thank you. God, I love these intros. Amazing. It makes me feel more confident.
1: Okay, good. Both of you are going to have a specialist subject round and then later on the general knowledge round. So what are your specialist subjects? Natalie?
7: Uh, Brazil in uh, 2002 World Cup. Very, very fond memory for us Brazilians. The last one Uh we won.
1: Ah, right.
6: Okay. And what about you, Jules? Uh, France at the 1998 World Cup, which is not the last one we won, but it's still a very fond memory for me and a lot lot of French people.
7: Not for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, less, less. All right, well, let's see if you can get some measure of revenge then as we begin our quiz. First up, it's you, Natalie, on Brazil in the 2002 World Cup. And question one Which Brazil player was ruled out of the World Cup after injuring himself while playing in goal during training before the tournament?
7: It was Emerson, our Correct. captain.
1: Yes. Correct. Question two. Why was Turkey's Hakan Unsal sent off during their game against Brazil in the group stages?
7: Because he kicked a ball uh, in Rivaldo and it was actually on his thigh, but Rivaldo put his hands on, on his face, which was not very necessary. But yeah, that's the story.
1: It certainly is question three. Three players in Brazil's starting eleven for the final also played in the Premier League at some point in their careers. Can you name those three players?
7: Okay, uh, Juninho. Mm. Oh, Gilberto Silva, of course. And um... got it. I don't remember the third one.
1: Gonna have to hurry, you, Natalie.
7: Yeah, I don't know the third one.
1: Okay, Juninho wasn't wasn't I think in that starting eleven. Uh, it was Hockey Junior, Gilberto Silva. And Kleberson.
7: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: God. Crikey. Yeah. Question four. Only two players were in the Brazil squads at both the 1994 and the 2002 World Cups. Which two players? Ronaldo. Yes. And Cafu. Correct. Question five. Here's a list of countries that Brazil faced at the 2002 World Cup. Germany, England, Turkey, China and Belgium. One team is missing from that list. Which one is it? Costa Rica. Correct. Yes. Correct, Natalie. So at the end of your specialist round, you've scored four out of five. How do you feel?
7: Yes, good. I'm kind of looking forward because I, I think Julien is, is playing low-key. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, that's just the way he plays, you know. That's just his game. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, that's, that's Julian. all right. All right, Julien, let's see how low-key you are with your questions on France 1998 at the World Cup. Question one. What was notable... About Laurent Blanc's goal against Paraguay in the round of 16.
6: It was a golden goal in extra time.
1: Yeah, first time that had ever happened at the World Cup.
6: Question yeah. two
1: Which French player missed in the shootout when they beat Italy on penalties in the quarterfinals? Bichantel Isarazou. Correct. Question three Which team is missing from the following list of countries that France faced at the 98 World Cup? Brazil, Denmark, Paraguay, Italy. Croatia, Saudi Arabia, and… South Africa. Correct. Question four. Only three of France's starting eleven from the final never played in England. But which three players were they?
6: So, three who started in the final who yes. didn't play in England? Yes. OK, so… Churam and Lizarazo? Yes. Oh, and
1: Zidane. It's correct. Woof. Zinedine Zidane. Uh, question five. Which Milan player was one of the six Amy Jacquet trimmed from his initial 28-man squad when picking the final 22 for that World Cup?
6: Bit of a deep cut, this question. So, Inter Milan or AC Milan? No,
1: Milan. AC Milan.
6: AC Milan. Ibrahim
1: Abar? Yeah. Ibrahim Bar. Correct. Five out of five for Jules. <laughs> And a one-point lead, then, as we await the decisive general knowledge round. Natalie, how are you feeling?
7: Well, now not so good. <laughs>
1: well, you're only one point behind. And, you know, as Jules himself mentioned before, second legs yeah, for his people. Not, good. not really a strong point.
7: <laughs> yeah, OK, let's see. I'm not feeling as confident as I was before, but let's see, yeah.
1: Well, who knows? We've seen some remarkable comebacks of late, not least Daniel's story uh, against Raphael Honigstein in our last show. Anyway, we'll find out when we return later on for the general knowledge round. Wow, that's a tight one. Daniel, of course, you're following this with particular interest because whoever wins is going to be facing you in the quarterfinals.
2: Yeah, I'll see who bottles that second leg. Indeed. Indeed. Mm. Alright, just the one point between them for
1: now But time for us to move onto the main attraction today As we drag back the marble slab And uncover another long-gone season of Premier League football And today, it's perhaps the most famous of all
3: I'm José Mourinho I know a thing or two about being special Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails Special Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games Not
1: special Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators.
4: Available on selected games. Ts and cs at paddypower.com. 18
5: Listeners, we want to tell you about a beautifully simple way to showcase and sell your photography. Picfair is used by over 150,000 people worldwide. It's a free platform that allows anyone to sell their photos from complete amateurs like me to seasoned professionals, probably like some of you out there in Podland. And Picfair is so simple. All you do is upload your photos, name your price, and those pics will appear on your personal online photography store. Your photographs will also be listed on PicFest central marketplace, where images taken by people who've never sold a picture before have been published by The Guardian, Time Out and Rough Guides, and they've even been used on the front cover of National Geographic. Alongside digital downloads, customers can also purchase your photos as beautiful frame prints and canvases. And whether you sell them through your own store or the marketplace, PicFest will produce the prints for you in high-quality labs and take care of all of the shipping. So, if you've got time on your hands and you're wondering what to do with all of the brilliant photos you've got lying around on your hard drive or camera roll, go to Pickfair.com and sign up for free today. That's P-I-C-F-A-I-R.com. Pickfair, a new home for your photography. On Spotify, smart speaker, and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. It's summer
1: 2003. In the Middle East, the Iraq invasion was winding up, ushering in a new era of peace and prosperity. In Britain, Concorde had made its last flight and so had Brookside.
0: You know, I can remember Harold Wilson
1: standing in my mother's hall. He was the bloody prime minister and he was still out on the knocker. And Roman Abramovich had bought Chelsea. In the culture that summer, while the White Stripes dropped this criminally underused riff, Harry Potter had a new adventure with the Order of the Phoenix and at the movies, the Lord of the Rings trilogy finally had its ending and then another, five minutes later, and then another. Meanwhile, after decades of records, tapes and CDs, an invention arrived that was destined to change forever the way we enjoy our music. altogether. now, the mini-disc. Mm. But what about the football? Well the 03-04 season was marked by three massive stories. The arrival of Roman Abramovich and the unprecedented summer spending spree. The departure of Leeds, also after unprecedented spending. And above all, the Arsenal and their unbeaten season. Michael! For anyone who's used to Arsenal in the later Wenger years, how different a beast was this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds an obvious thing to say, but they were a really incredible uh, team. They went unbeaten, as we all know. But I think it's worth reiterating that back in those days, for a side to have a long unbeaten run, it was often seen as a side who had a really good defence and they're very solid at the back. And, And Arsenal were, they kept 21 clean sheets, which was the most in the league. But this was a very attack-minded side. I think they'd evolved a little bit from 98 and 2002, became a little bit more comfortable in possession. They weren't quite so reliant upon the counter-attack, although, of course, they had Henri and Perez who were wonderfully quick players. And yeah, you you go back and you look at this season and there's certain games where it felt like Arsenal were in quite a unique status as being the runaway champions and also the neutral's favourites. I mean, there was a, a game at Portsmouth in the FA Cup, most famously, I think, where Portsmouth were kind of singing Thierry Henry's name and he did a a lap of the pitch at the end in a Portsmouth shirt and it was like this doesn't really happen in football this isn't the kind of thing we're accustomed to but they were you know an incredibly entertaining side who scored some wonderful goals and you know even though there wasn't much of a title race there was a genuine tension uh, to see whether they'd finish the season without losing and of course they uh, they did in the end
1: it did. The previous year, they had been eight points clear with nine games to go, but rather threw it away, winning just two of the next seven, and Man United taking the title. That didn't happen this time around. They had made improvements. Ces Fabrias coming in from uh, Barcelona's youth setup. Jens Lehmann replacing uh, David Seaman. And mid season as, as well, uh, Jose Antonio Reyes uh, joining the club. But the big names, and I guess the, the focus of attention, was that extraordinary array of firepower that they they had up front?
2: Yeah, not just firepower, but but also firepower that changed places with each other was almost as fluid as as some of the great teams of the total football era. The you know Johan Cruyff's Barcelona, even the Dutch team itself. We know Henri liked to drift left to pick up the ball and then move in field, but so many players in that team were comfortable doing it. And it's no exaggeration to say that. Premier League's defences just could not cope with it. You know, they couldn't cope with Henri. He, he was almost a cheap player when he was informed because he was worth a goal a game. And he, he, the example he set for that attack was like nothing we'd really ever seen before, I think. Ball
4: through to Perez by Edu, used to Henri. He's got plenty to aim at, like that. An astounding goal from Thierry Henri.
1: 30 goals he scored in the league that season, 39 in total. Uh, Joe Patch asks, is Henri's season that year the best of an individual in Premier League history? And should he have won the Ballon d'Or that season?
3: I think he probably should have done. But maybe he suffered from the fact that he, although he was the standout player in the Premier League, it wasn't like he was by a a wide margin the standout player in that Arsenal team because they had you a spine of Sol Campbell and um, Patrick Vieira and obviously Bergkamp a lot. Along with Henri up front, it wasn't like all the focus was on Henri. Maybe if they had been a bit more of a one-man team, he he would have had a better chance of winning the Ballon d'Or. But as you mentioned, James, 30 Premier League goals, only four other players managed to get 30 or more in a 38-game Premier League season. So yeah, very impressive he was back in 03-04.
2: There are arguments for other players to win that Ballon d'Or, but he got eight more votes than Theo Zagorakis, which in hindsight seems uh, maybe we just became a little bit spoilt by how good he was almost as we have been in this Messi and Ronaldo era go back to that year when Messi didn't even finish in the top five maybe it feels a little bit like that he was almost such a cheap player that we just took him for granted I wonder
1: Michael meanwhile Arsene Wenger also has the, the charge laid against him that he inherited a good defence but couldn't build one on his own this season was kind of evidence to the contrary of that
0: yeah, there wasn't anyone in this defence that really survived from that old back four. I mean, Martin Keown was still knocking around. You see him really in, in two ways. One, for jumping on Rud van Isteroy, as I'm sure we'll speak about in a second. And two, for um, this was back in the days where you needed to play 10 Premier League games to get a medal. So Arsene Wenger brought him on for the final two minutes of, I think, the last four league games, which was just quite amusing because... Wenger didn't actually want to put Kion in defence, so he came on at right midfield and just ran up and down the line quite quite hopelessly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, as I say, they kept the most clean sheets in the league. And the big, I guess, talking point for the defence for Arsenal was, was Colatore, who'd come to the club as a bit of a box-to-box midfielder, had filled in sometimes at full-back and, and often looked a little bit ropey in that position, to be honest. And no one suspected that he would become a very good centre-back, Um but his his partnership with Campbell was fantastic. And there was also a period where uh, Lauren, the right-back, was out injured for, I think, seven or eight games and Torrio went to right-back. Um, and that meant that Arsenal played Pascal Sigon in the centre of their defence alongside Sol Campbell. And Sigon is kind of remembered as a bit of a joke figure. But, you know, he he very much contributed to, uh, yeah, not just the title, but the unbeaten run.
1: Kolo Torrio is so versatile. Could play midfield, right-back. Centre back, car salesman, you name it, he he had it all covered.
2: (laughs) I I think that defence gets slightly uh, unfairly treated by just how good Henri was. They conceded 26 league goals that season, which I had a look and that's Arsenal's third best defence in a league season in their history. So, I mean, it. But it is Arsenal. Maybe. Yeah, but they were, um, I think they were probably attacking from the front. They were dominating teams so much that teams almost didn't have the energy to counter-attack on them. But 26 league goals conceded is a remarkable effort, really. They scored fewer goals than the season before and the season after, and yet they didn't win the league in either of those two seasons. So you could argue that it was that defence that was the kind of difference maker for them.
1: Also, Arsene Wenger, back in those days, was still enjoying an incredible spell of picking up players for almost nothing, uncovering players that nobody else seemed to be able to to pick up on which which used to be his kind of USB he completely disappeared from his uh, from his palette later on but Colatori who they got from uh, Ivory Coast for I think £150,000 even Freddie Lumberger only cost uh, £3 million from Halmstad in Sweden alright well then the unbeaten run only one club had ever been able to do this for a whole season Preston North End back in 88-89 18-88-89 that is but they only played 22 matches Arsenal got to 49 of course but this run almost ended before it got going, Michael.
0: Yeah, I think the the two times they came closest to losing it were relatively early in the season. One was a home game against Portsmouth, where they relied on a, a Robo Perez dive, to be frank, to uh, get the equaliser. And then was that, you know, one of the many famous games between Arsenal and Manchester United during this period. But maybe this is, looking back, the most memorable, which is funny because it was a nil-nil, but... Yeah, the, the Van Nistelrooy penalty miss at the end and obviously the celebrations, if you can call it that, from the Arsenal players at full time.
4: The responsibility rests with Rube Van Nistelrooy. Oh, he's missed it! He has hit the bar! It's the final whistle. And Arsenal do get their draw, but it's not finished yet. They're all around Rube Van Nistelrooy.
0: It's kind of gone down in history now as, you know, almost like a, a comedy event. But I remember at the time this was depicted as Arsenal completely losing the plot and their players losing it so badly that they were going to end up with such um, such strict bans that they were going to struggle to really to, to challenge Manchester United. There was talk of six or seven players being handed a, a three or more game ban at, at the time. So this was a really a kind of, you know, a, a thing Arsenal really had to get over in the end. The bans were not particularly severe. I think I think there were three or four players banned. A couple of them only for one game.
1: Vier and uh, Ray Parler get a game each. Ray Parler, who kind of taps Van Disroy quite heartily in the chest, uh, Lauren gets a four-game ban. And Martin Keehan, who gets very much in Rude's face, uh, picked up a three-game suspension. A young Cristiano Ronaldo getting stuck in in the melee after the uh, the penalty had uh, rocketed off the crossbar.
0: There's been a few Arsenal Man United scraps over the years but that one was particularly feisty and you know looking back obviously it was it was a I mean it was dreadful sportsmanship really from Keown in particular and some of the others but there was a real there was a real hatred towards Van Nistelrooy against those Arsenal players because I mean Van Nistelrooy was a funny player he obviously was a center forward but he was incredibly uh, scrappy, quite a dirty player, I think. And he constantly wound up Arsenal over the years with with just kind of quite subtle little kicks here and there. And I think, obviously, it all overspilled that day. You know, looking back, it's, it's pretty bad. But I think there was an accumulation of hatred that had built up over quite a few matches between the sides.
1: He wasn't desperately popular among his own team either, was he?
0: No, well, certainly not with Ronaldo. I mean, his squabbles with Ronaldo basically ended... Van Nistelrooy's Manchester United career and you know the ironic thing was they both ended up very briefly at Real Madrid together but uh, no he was I mean Van Nistelrooy was a brilliant brilliant goal scorer, but a pure individualist I would say and for someone like Ronaldo who was not a David Beckham type winger even though he was replacing David Beckham Van Nistelrooy couldn't really get on with him and was was constantly complaining Ronaldo wasn't crossing so no he wasn't particularly popular with his own teammates like you say.
1: Where does this Arsenal team stand in the Premier League pantheon? Is it the best ever? Or as Mangesh at the Indian Red suggests, the most overrated great team of all time?
2: I mean, that that idea of, of I'm not going to have a go at listeners, but the idea of teams being grossly overrated, that's a nonsense, really. They're obviously a, a brilliant team. They've done something that no other team has managed uh, since, uh, despite an increased financial dominance of the bigger clubs over the smaller clubs that I think makes it easier and easier with every passing season. it should be said that part of the reason that their reputation suffers is because they they flunk the cup competitions to an extent you know home defeats to to Chelsea to Manchester United and, and Middlesbrough in a, in a League Cup semi-final impacted upon what could have been a, a, a you know an absolute dynastical t- season and a team and that will inevitably affect their reputation as we look back but purely on that league season alone there's absolutely well by definition there's no reason to to doubt them.
3: It was also something that was kind of propagated a bit by Alex Ferguson, wasn't it? Because every opportunity that that he got in in the kind of immediate aftermath of that, he points out a lot of draws, you know, 12 draws, that's a lot of draws for, for an unbeaten team and seemed quite keen to kind of downplay the achievement whenever he got the chance.
0: Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out as well that, you know, as Daniel alludes to, the financial inequality wasn't so stark and it wasn't like the situation where we have now where City or Liverpool you know, whoever wins the title, they lose like one or two games a season. The previous two times Manchester United won the title, they lost five and six games respectively. And, and the turning
1: point really came with this season because one of the other big stories of 03 04 was the arrival at Chelsea of Roman Abramovich. <laughs> Matt, what a watershed moment at the bridge. Press in a frenzy that summer, just an unprecedented amount of spending by one club. This is before financial fair play and an extraordinary uh, cavalcade of top brand talent arriving. How do you remember this?
5: Yeah, it's,
3: it's interesting looking back on it now, actually, you mentioned the spending, net spend of £153.4 million pounds that season. Chelsea have only got close to that once since, and that was before the 20, well, including the 2018-19 season, and, and part of that was on Christian Pulisic, who obviously didn't come till this year, so it really was... Blowing teams out of the water, um, as you say, lack of FFP, but but some of the names as well. You know, obviously at, at the very start of this, uh, that was part of what attracted Abramovich. I think he had Hernan Crespo and, and Juan Sebastian Veron, Veron, who, who'd not gone on particularly well at, at Manchester United. Kind of mix of of players who who didn't really settled like Veron and Crespo and then others who became key players in Chelsea's history like, like McAlealy and, and even Joe Cole and Damien Duff to to slightly lesser extents. But it was, it was an amazing thing to happen in English football. I remember it being the lead item on News at 10 the day that it was announced because it was such, a, such an extraordinary thing, albeit that he only actually paid Ken Bates £60 million to buy Chelsea. So he spent almost three times that much during the summer and yeah what what a massive impact he had not just on chelsea but but on the premier league uh, in general as I think has been fairly widely reported, it wasn't that Abramovich had his heart set on Chelsea. He wanted to buy an English football team and, and he kind of did the rounds uh, speaking to people, including the day before he met Ken Bates at, at the Dorchester Hotel, he went to see Daniel Levy at Spurs, who who said, well, we could do you 29.9% of Tottenham. And Abramovich wasn't interested in that. He wanted um, control of a club. And so, you know, the power of... of Football in London in particular shifted one way when it could quite easily have gone another. It was... It was something of a, a leap of faith from from Ken Bates who was, who was selling up because Abramovich was not a well-known figure in the UK at this point uh, to the point that when uh, Bates and Abramovich met along with uh, Abramovich's representative Eugene Tenenbaum, they brought with them a copy of Forbes magazine which had Abramovich listed as the 15th richest person in the world which was kind of you know the brief of, yeah, okay, this guy actually does have the money because they'd been looking for investment for for a couple of years um with Bates knowing that, that he was getting close to the end of his tenure but all they'd had were a lot of kind of time wasters who were basically interested in in buying the club to knock down the stadium uh, to build you know lucrative London property on it instead and uh, lo and behold Abramovich comes back into the country with Eugene Tenenbaum uh, they're flying to Stamford Bridge from Farnborough where they'd landed uh, they fly over a football stadium with the pitch all dug up because it's summer Abramovich turns to Tenenbaum and says that's not what you've made me buy, is it? Turns out it was Craven Cottage rather than Stamford Bridge and Craven Cottage was in the process of being, as I say, dug up and, and changed around a bit in the summer. But yeah, massive moment in the history of the Premier League and, and in English football. You know, they, they went on to win the Premier League in each of the two seasons after this one and, and have won 18 major trophies since he took control.
1: Claudio Ranieri, the manager that year, they finished a distant second, but he, of course, uh, was dismissed a, because Jose Mourinho was coming and B, because of that business game of getting beaten by Monaco in the semi-finals of the Champions League. Lots of listeners writing in with treasured memories from the O3 O4 campaign. Daniel Hendry asks, was this the season when the highlights were on ITV accompanied by U2 at like 7.30pm? What a dystopian time it was, says Daniel Hendry.
2: Yeah, and, and I have to say, I... I... It might be an unpopular opinion, but I actually like the fact that it was on early evening. I've always thought that that makes sense for the the main exclusive football highlights programme. I know it's a bit different now that Sky can show the goals as they go, or shortly after they go in, but yeah, I liked it. I, I thought Match of the Day's production value was better and it got it back and it was a bit of a golden tradition of British television anyway. But I've always liked the idea of it being on an early evening so kids could watch it rather than this sort of faux stereotype of men coming home from the pub and watching it at 1030
1: That show was vilified, you know, with the tactics truck and all that. Was Mm. it that bad, though, Michael, Matt?
2: They had
3: Des and presenting, didn't they? I remember it, that was kind of the, the link to Match of the Day. But I think the most jarring thing for people was the ad breaks, to be perfectly honest. I'm not sure there's that much difference in in how they would packaged it up compared to Match of the Day, aside from the tactics truck. But people having to get used to whatever it was, three, four commercial breaks of three minutes each, uh, which was something that you obviously never had on Match of the Day, was, was kind of jarring for people, I think. Mm.
0: I just while we're on the subject of uh, TV coverage, I was chatting to producer Charlie before this and one of the slight quirks about Arsenal's campaign is that there's quite a few key moments that weren't live on television this was a time where there was maybe three live games a weekend so it wasn't every Arsenal game I think the two in particular would be the 2-1 home win over Chelsea with an Omri goal from Carlo Cudicini's mistake that was a Saturday 3pm game so no one actually saw it and maybe more surprisingly that very famous 4-2 victory over Liverpool in the run-in where Thierry Henry seems to run past Jamie Carragher about three times, that was on a good Friday, I think at a 3pm kick-off, and that wasn't live on TV either. So there's quite a few key moments that we only discovered about on ITV's uh, Premiership rather than watching it live on TV.
1: Wow. Uh, the same goes for Man United-Liverpool, uh, which that season was a 3pm Saturday kick-off. The last season that that was that fixture was un un-telefied. So, uh, yeah... Anyway, now, oh, speaking of Man United and indeed taking breaks, uh, Rio Ferdinand, this was the season that he forgot to turn up for his drugs test and received an eight-month ban. Yikes. Akbar Chaudhry says this was Ronaldo's debut Premier League season and though plagued with inconsistency, his opening day cameo at home to Bolton was arguably the most exciting at Old Trafford for some time. Aklaf Hanif also writes in, how did the panel expect his career to progress after that first season from him in English football?
3: Certainly not to the extent that he did. Going back to the, the Premiership on ITV, it was that was kind of when Ron Atkinson coined his lollipop phrase for Ronaldo's stepovers, which he was doing excessively um, during his first few games at Old Trafford. But yeah, four goals and four assists in 29 Premier League games didn't really give much of a hint of, of what was to
0: come, albeit he was only a teenager. I mean, I, I think to, to call his first season inconsistent, I think he's actually even slightly charitable. There was a real kind of sense that Ronaldo was just this very wiry, very slim kid who, you know, was just obsessed with doing stepovers, as Matt says, and was just going to get kicked out of English football. I I really was struggling to believe at that time that he was definitely going to become a a first-team regular for Manchester United, let alone someone who won the Ballon d'Or five times. Um, You know, as mentioned, that debut against Bolton was fantastic, but that really was the exception to the rule throughout that first season. It was probably another two years, I would say, before people really got to you know, get the sense that this was a player who was going to be uh, a real superstar.
2: To me, Manchester United season, was not it wasn't defined by by Ronaldo, although his, his signing proved to be understandably excellent. It was the waste of, of money. It was Ferguson's really bad missteps in the transfer market. You know, that summer they spent £35 million on David Bellion, Eric Jemba Jemba, Kleberson, Dong Fanzua, Louis Saha, who was in his defence reasonably consistent for United and Alan Smith now that was exactly the same amount of money that Arsenal had spent on the six players that got into the PFA team of the year that season which is Patrick Vieira, Ashley Cole, Sol Campbell, Terry, Henry, Robert Perez and Lauren you know while Wenger was at that point seemed to be kind of perfecting the transfer market Manchester United's signings were almost all dismal other than Ronaldo who as Michael says that season was actually a disappointment.
1: Elsewhere in the 2003-04 season, Borough won the League Cup under Steve McLaren. Charlton had their best ever Premier League finish all the way up in seventh. A side built around Scott Parker, Matt Holland, Jason Ewell, and Paolo Di Canio. This is a great season, actually, looking back for players in clubs that you had no idea that they actually turned out for. Wolves having Paul Lintz and-, and Teddy Sheringham leading the line at Portsmouth might surprise you, but for me... That completely blew my mind. Paolo de at the Valley. Any other players you're surprised about there? Uh, McManaman and Fowler at Man City. Like, I, yeah. I knew that happened, but just
3: looking back on it, it feels a bit of an oddity that they were both there at the same time when Man City were quite
0: rubbish.
1: Do you remember much about this uh, incredible run by Charton? It faded a bit at the end, but extraordinary. And Alan Kerbyshire, of course, Michael.
0: Yeah, as I said about Sunderland a couple of weeks ago, Charlton are a great Premier League year's side. They just seem to constantly pop up and beat the big boys. I think at this point, Charlton won a run of beating Chelsea five times in a row or something. Their problem was they always seemed to fade after Christmas. This was an interesting season because, okay they finished seventh, which is still very good for Charlton. But they were in the Champions League places at the midway point. They were fourth. So, yeah, they had this funny habit of fading once survival was sealed. But they're always uh, quite an entertaining side to watch.
1: Brilliant. What about Bolton, though, back in the day, with an extraordinary collection of players they'd assembled there at the Reebok?
2: Yeah, this was, um, I think this was almost peak Bolton. They signed Kevin Davies from Southampton in the close season, uh, and that that seemed to perfect uh, the Big Sam football. They finished eighth, a place behind Charlton, but it was when they had everyone you can remember, you know, a cocher uh, was nominated for the PFA Player of the Year award, although he didn't score a goal.
1: He had 137 shots without scoring. That uh, no yeah. one's ever had uh, more shots than that without actually managing a goal. Yeah,
2: they had Kevin Nolan in his youngest days of, of Premier League football. Let's say F. Campo, Stelios, Ricardo Gardner, Henrik Pedersen. It was it was peak Bolton of all those players you can remember from that time.
3: I really like Portsmouth in this season. This is their first first ever season in the Premier League. And just looking through their squad, kind of loads of likeable footballers, Patrick Berger, Lamanu Lualuari, who they had on loan, uh, the police forces, Ariane Dezeu, and Yakubu, who was on fire, particularly at the end of the season. So so Portsmouth were in the relegation zone mid-March. They then lost only one of their last 10, won six of those. Yakubu got 11 goals in those 10 games, including four against Borough on the last day of the season. But they were just a really fun team to watch Portsmouth in in that season, I seem to recall.
0: Yeah, there's a a fun bit about Luar Luar. I mean, obviously, one of my researching for this uh, pod was watching the Premier League years. and One of the themes throughout that programme is, do players celebrate when they score against their former clubs? So Robbie Keane scored a hat-trick against Wolves, refused to celebrate. Robbie Fowler scored a last-minute equaliser for Man City against Liverpool. Surprisingly, to me, did celebrate. And then you've got Lomane Luolua, who isn't just against his former side. He's against the side who own him in the days before the Premier League banned lone players playing against their parent clubs. Scores an equaliser and he gives an interview and he says later he celebrated because some of the Newcastle fans were booing him and he wasn't going to celebrate and thought... If they're booing me, I'm going to celebrate. And doesn't just celebrate, does 10 backflips in a row in front of them. I think yeah. it's got to go down as one of the most enjoyable Premier League celebrations ever. There's a
2: really nice line from Bobby Robson as well, who I interviewed after the game, kind of just sort of exacerbated, just shouts, he's hurt us today. He's hurt us. And he knows that. <laughs> and it's really good.
1: By the, by the way, Matt, refresh my memory as to why Iron Dezeel was called uh, what you describe as the police forces. He, when he retired from football, he became a, a
3: detective back in back in Holland. Brilliant!
1: That's interesting. There's, there's a feature footballers and what they did after retirement. Yeah, because that's he didn't just become a policeman but a detective, which requires mm. a certain amount of career progression. Clever fella.
3: I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power games. Not special.
1: Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be
4: awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. plus Elsewhere in oh,
5: the
1: 0304 season and across town from the Invincibles were the team that became known as the Vincibles, Tottenham. They turned down Roman's money. They were having their usual mare. They'd spent all their cash on Helda Postiga. Uh, who didn't score until December and I think finished with one league goal for the entire campaign. Glenn Hoddle got fired after six games. David Pleat came in and they finished 14th under him. And uh, this also featured perhaps the ultimate Spursy game among a packed field of contenders their fourth round FA Cup tie replay with Man City. Daniel, do you remember this?
2: I do remember it. If only, I think the only player I do remember, and it's one we all remember from it, is Jonathan Macken. There was just a bit of tugging on Macken. He scored! John Macken!
4: Tottenham Hotspur, three. Manchester City, four.
2: But yeah, they were 3-0 up and conspired to lose 4-3. And of
3: course, it was against 10 men for a large portion of the game as well. So yeah, if you look up Spursy in the
0: dictionary, there is a picture of John Macken. And the good thing about that, and this was one of the games that was live on TV, was Barton wasn't just sent off, he was sent off at half-time. I think he he said something to the referee as they were going off at half-time. And I remember watching this game and I'd never heard of a player getting sent off at half-time before. It seemed a very classically Joey Barton thing to do.
1: This was also the season... But Leeds left the top flight and they haven't come back since. Just three years before, they were Champions League semi-finalists. What went wrong?
2: They gambled on remaining Champions League semi-finalists, or, or that being a regular occurrence. Peter Ridsdale had um, effectively taken out loans um, that could only be repaid if Leeds got Champions League broadcasting revenue, and they were kind of unlucky. They they missed out on the Champions League twice in a row uh just missed out on it twice in a row but the reality was that they were spending far far beyond their means and the the full fire sale had actually come a little bit before 03-04. it had become the season before and they it was all played out or managed through some dreadful coaching appointments you know they they first appointed Terry Venables to replace David O'Leary um when it he was probably at least 10 years past his prime and then they replaced uh Venables with Peter Reed, who was probably three or four years past his prime, and then they replaced Peter Reed with Eddie Gray, who had never really had his time as a as a frontline manager. So yeah, they they were relegated with with 33 points by six points. Uh, they'd only sold Harry Kewell and Olivier Decor of the big names before the season, but they were wretched. they really were. The
1: young side that featured uh, James Milner, who's is he the only player in the Premier League from 03 or four who is still active in the division? Now, Aaron Lennon, who was also part
3: of the Leeds squad in that season, he made 11 appearances from the bench in 03-04. Wow.
0: Knowledge. I've got a couple of uh, quirky stats, if I can provide, since uh, Duncan Alexander isn't here. The first one is that despite Chelsea splashing the cash on so many centre forwards, their top-scoring player this season was actually someone out on loan, was Mikhail Forsell, who scored 17 goals for Birmingham that campaign. The other one, and I can't really get my head around this, is that the player with the most assists in the league uh, was Muzzy it? who was playing for relegated Leicester. Now, I haven't checked, but that must be the only time that the top assister in the league has played for a relegated team. I then went through and completely forgot that Muzzy it was a Turkish international and played against uh, Brazil in the 2002 World Cup semi-finals, which... I just find very strange considering he was, I think, a Londoner who came through Chelsea's youth system. Um, But yeah, two slightly random things from the season that uh, I couldn't mention anywhere earlier.
3: Um, Worth also maybe just um, on on Middlesbrough, you know, that's the only trophy that they've ever won in their history, the League Cup. One for footballers with ironic names, uh, scorer of the first goal that day when he's out of contract, Joseph Desiree Job.
5: Nice. (laughs) Yep
2: the The other thing, the only thing I wanted to mention as extra is, although to me two thousand three four feels like, in inverted commas, modern football, I find it astonishing that there were only three non-British managers of Premier League clubs that season, and two of those, uh, Ranieri and Julier lost their jobs at the end of that season albeit to be replaced by very successful other you know foreigners but that seems incredible that 17 of the 20 managers were managed by Brits at a time where as I say that feels we were we already had the foreign invasion of players but we hadn't had the knock-on effect of of managers at that point.
1: Actually, there was a question about whether Arsene Wenger's success with Arsenal ushered in a wave of foreign managers. Because at this point, as you mentioned, I think pretty much half of the Premier League's technical staff had come from the same kind of five-mile square radius in Glasgow.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think it was probably more to do with what we opened the show with, which was Roman Abramovich's his takeover. I think it was the Abramovich signified a, a period of rapid foreign investment in the Premier League, and I think it was probably that foreign investment that that meant that the capability was there to buy expensive foreign players. And if you're going to do that, you might as well have expensive foreign managers as well.
3: Yeah, and, and you know, maybe the season after this was when that really took hold because you had two foreign managers, one win in the Premier League and one win in the Champions League in, in Mourinho and Benitez. So that kind of reinforced reinforced the point that Wenger had made in this season.
1: Absolutely. A season that we, we delved back into recently here on the Totally Football Show. If you didn't catch that, go back and have a listen now. They're pretty timeless these episodes. But that is the 2003-04 uh, season. What a trip. What what memories. So uh, many thanks for that uh, look back. Uh, we're not done, though, today on today's show, because to finish up next, it is Jules against Natalie, part two. Jules and Natalie, welcome back to you both.
7: Thank welcome you. Back.
1: Well, the situation is, Natalie, you had four points from your, your specialist round. And Jules, you got a maximum five out of five. So let's get into the general knowledge questions. Five questions each. Natalie, you're up first. Natalie, who holds the record for most England caps for an outfield player?
7: Uh, Bobby Charton?
1: No, it's Wayne Rooney. Question two complete the following sequence Croatia, Turkey, Germany, Germany, Netherlands. Who's next in that sequence?
7: Can you repeat that sequence? Sure. Please?
1: So <laughs> sequence goes: Croatia, Turkey, Germany, Germany again, and then Netherlands. Which country would be next?
7: I have no idea.
1: Okay, these are Fran- third place.
7: France. Oh, third. No. Oh, okay, no. Yeah, no, no, the no, third place no.
1: teams of the World Cup. Belgium was the next mm. one. Question three. Who said the following? You bought a Ferrari, but you drive it like a Fiat. (laughs) Famously opinionated player.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Julian is laughing because he knows this one.
6: (laughs) I think I do. I'm not sure, but I think I do.
7: No, Natalie? No, I don't. Okay,
6: Jules, who is it? Is it Ibra to Pep Guardiola?
1: It was, yes. Okay, question four. These are getting crucial now, Natalie. Question four: Which European team plays at Vodafone Park?
7: Vodafone Park.
1: Yeah. Which European team?
7: Ah, Besiktas from Turkey.
1: Wow, that's correct. Sorry. I didn't quit a swig of coffee. Uh, yes, correct. <laughs> uh, question five, then Natalie, and this to take the lead. Whose career path goes like this? Real Madrid, Juventus, Real Madrid again, Chelsea, Atletico Madrid. Which player has that on his CV?
7: Uh, so it's. Uh, can you repeat the the clubs? Please? Sure.
1: So Real Madrid, then Juventus, then Real Madrid, then Chelsea, then Atletico Madrid.
7: Álvaro mm. Morata Correct Yes
1: All Right So What a strong finish Then to the General Knowledge round And that means You pull one point Into the lead Will that be enough Natalie?
7: I don't think so Yeah Julian's going to Crush me
1: well, Let's see <laughs> Let's see Jules Are you ready For your General Knowledge Questions? I am ready Jimbo Jules Question one What do the Following clubs Have in common In relation To the Champions League Or European Cup Feyenoord Aston Villa PSV and Red Star Bill Grade.
6: they've all won it well that's true but 80s? something more
1: specific to those clubs
6: oh they've all won it on penalties in the finals
1: no I'm afraid I can't accept that they've all won the only final they've played in
6: oh yeah God, yeah Villa didn't yeah yeah yeah
1: that's right it's all it's happening all over again Jules question two complete yes. the following sequence Arsenal Arsenal Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea.
6: Okay. um, Arsenal, 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 you said. Man United. Yep, then Arsenal again.
1: Chelsea. And then Chelsea. And then who? And then.
6: Jaws. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, just one second. I will go. For Man United again.
1: No, it's Manchester City. These were the last six FA Cup winners. So, question three. At which club did Michael Owen finish his career? Stoke. Correct. That pulls you level. This to go through to the quarterfinals. Which Spanish club take their nickname from a Beatles song? Villarreal correct Jules you're in the quarterfinals. the yellow submarine of course and question five for you was what do these players have in common Bernd Schuster Albert Saladis uh, Luis Enrique Samuel Eto, Ronaldo and Javier Saviola
6: they all played for both Barcelona and Real Madrid is correct
1: is correct so at the end of that you scored three out of five but ooh you gave yourself a bit of a scare Natalie it sounded like them. It sounded like a man collapsing there yeah
7: I know. The pressure got to me.
1: The mean. pressure got to me.
7: Oh god! Sorry, sorry. Yeah, he <laughs> well, totally Natalie crushed to say, me.
1: Yeah, but I have to say, uh, you being from Brazil, doing general knowledge on kind of largely European topics, you you weren't exactly playing at home.
7: I know, but the Wayne Rooney one, I think I could have got that. Mm. I, I was I was having second thoughts between the the two of them. Oh. Well, but it's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fair loser. So, congrats to Julian. And, <laughs> oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. What can you say, right? Yeah. Mm. J- j- it's, a, it's a poor uh, choice of subject, but I, I I can forgive him for that.
1: Which, oh, the 98 <laughs> World Cup.
7: Yes, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah. There'll be more of Sorry. that, I'm sure, when we get to the quarterfinals, Jules. I look forward to speaking to you again soon on the Totally Show. And, and many thanks. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jimbo.
7: Not a huge pleasure, but thank you, James.
1: Well, that was unexpectedly dramatic, although given Jules's proclivities, perhaps not that unexpected. But he made it through. And Daniel, that's who you will be facing in the quarterfinal. How do you feel?
2: Yeah, fine. I wish he'd have saved his run of incorrect answers on general knowledge questions for, for me.
1: I think there's gas left in that explosion. (laughs) You you guys were running through us all uh, the the questions yourself. How how did you guys do on the general knowledge?
2: I think we did pretty well, I think.
1: You did. And Matt and Michael, of course, as we mentioned, will be going head-to-head at the end of the, the first round of matches.
3: Yeah, I don't really enjoy the. Uh, I don't really enjoy as as doing answering the questions kind of off air when it's me and Michael together because he always gets loads more than me and it's my confidence is really low ahead of the big one.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's coming. Uh, Emma and Jack, Emma Saunders and Jack Lang, will be the next two uh, to take part in the InterTotally Cup that's coming up this coming Thursday in a show which will also feature us uh, retroing the Champions League ninety six ninety seven season. Plus, in Thursday's show, in our film season, we'll be reviewing Mean Machine. You know, the the soccer remake, not the Burt Reynolds American Football Prison original. Bingo. Looking forward to watching that for Thursday's show. Listener, why don't you have a bang on it as well? I think it's on Netflix if you're a subscriber. And let us know your thoughts. Uh, Brilliant. For uh, now, though, that's it for today's show. Many thanks to Michael, to Matt and Daniel. Big plans for Easter Monday?
2: it's a working day for the football community isn't it that's true actually there's no bank holidays in football
1: all right then well hope you have a lovely one guys and indeed you as well listener and uh, don't forget the other totally football shows that are on the way before thursday and we'll catch up with you soon from all of us here it's goodbye